This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Mahmoud Abdelkader from Balanced. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. So one thing I read about you was that you got your start programming trying to reverse engineer WoW, World of Warcraft. <laughs> Uh, well, that's actually uh, my co-founders wrote that as a joke, but it's not too far off. Okay, uh, I actually got my start in programming by trying to reverse engineer Age of Empires. Okay, uh, I don't know if you are familiar with that game. I am. A little, um, yeah. Yeah. So I built a lot of cheats for online multiplayer games for the. Age of Empires series. Um, wow. So it was like me against Ensemble Studios and several other hackers. And the idea was I, I was so bad at resource management. Instead of just like pouring hours over the game, I was like, oh, why don't I just, you know, figure out how the game works and kind of see if I can, you know, benefit myself in some way mm -hmm. uh, without having to pour all these hours into becoming m much better. So we, I actually was able to reverse engineer. First, I started like you know a very simple no fog hack. Then afterwards, I started really getting into internals of how the cheat codes that the game provided for a single player use worked. And then I was able to see if I could turn them on for myself in a game. So, for example, you and I would be playing, and they had a cheat code where they would give you a car with like a missile launcher. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And Age of Empires is based in you know prehistoric times. You know, still sword fighting. So you and I would be playing, and I'd be like, oh, you're winning, cool, I'm just going to spin up all these like cars with the rocket launchers, and I'm just going to send them at you. Uh -huh. um, and that's kind of like how I learned how assembly work, how to assemble a game, kind of like read and deadlist the code and kind of figure out exploits and, and ways of checks that they forgot to add when they compiled their source code. And that's what really got me going with programming. Mm -hmm. It's funny to hear people's sort of initial motivations, what got them yeah. in, in, enough to pour through something the first time. Yeah, yeah, and so that was that was really interesting. And then that continued. That continued to uh, Age of Empires two, which was the Age of Kings. And I lost interest in the game after that. Um, but what caught my interest was Warcraft three. Mm. I actually did a lot of War Warcraft three hacking, kind of like emulating Battle.net. But uh, I can't talk about it too much. But um, and then I got and then I was addicted to World of Warcraft for about a year. And then that stopped my gaming, and I stopped just cold turkey. Yeah. games at that point nothing since then yeah yeah i've been i've been much <laughs> cold turkey uh-huh yeah okay so i think the oldest thing i found uh after that on your like online bios is you did uh worked on high frequency trading at wachovia yeah yeah what was that like okay so let me tell you a story about that so um so I actually this was my the end of the wow era um i got some i took some job at a college that was like a computer sciences corporation it was completely pointless um and i did absolutely nothing did you study cs in school i studied computer engineering okay it was basically a hybrid of electrical engineering and some computer science mm -hmm. i thought i wanted to be more of the hardware slash chip manufacturing you know like signal processing but that part was not really as interesting i was always very fascinated by software and then instead of 
and I just wanted to explore. I felt college was an option to explore like what hardware would be like, but you know, software was just like the iteration cycle was quicker. Um, it was much easier to build very tangible products very quickly. I mean, software for me was was much easier way to express myself. I think, mm-hmm. but out of college, I took this programming job working for the IRS. Um, yeah, and it, it was con- it was through a contractor called Computer Sciences Corporation. CSC, it's a big company, um, and I graduated out of University of Maryland, so a lot of the government contracts, they scoop you up, you know, for graduates, and they kind of just give you all these government contracts, because we're, you know, very near the D.C. area, and there's a lot of, like, defense contractors, IRS contractors, all these different things that have to do with the government, and, uh, man, it was not really that great. I, I was very bored. I, like, coded not that much. It was still using some mainframe. It was very, very old technology, like C++ still. Mm-hmm. I played WoW in the middle. In the, in the game, I would go in, I'd just play WoW. And, you know, when I was going to leave, I did like two hours worth of work. And then about six months in, I was like, you know what? This can't be all that there is to adult life. Right. There has to be more. And I was like, I'm going to see what other interesting fields there are. And Wachovia actually just reached out to me. It was one of the, it was one of three. I was like interviewing with Google and Amazon at the time. I just thought it would be really cool to work on really high frequency trading systems because you can always get a job at Google or Amazon, but the finance world just felt like this like black box to me. And I, I heard a couple of people going there, but I just thought maybe, oh, maybe this might be an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I went to Wachovia. And they they are incredible programmers. You know, it was just like a much different level of caliber of engineers there than there were, you know, that worked for the government. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like really where I had my formal software engineering professional training. Mm-hmm. So that's basically, and then so you know, and I was there during a the crash and so on and so forth. So it was very stressful. But it's really where I got to, you know, get my hands really dirty in like real professional code and like that that actually mattered, you know. And a lot of people don't work on things that matter, but this one was like, we have to deploy this, and it's gonna, you know, cost us three million dollars if we don't get it out. And it was just really interesting to have that kind of pressure. Yeah. Did you have good like mentors there? Yes, surprisingly, I was an experiment for them because I was too junior. Um, typically, you don't hire people of my level, but. They were really impressed, so they were like, "Why don't we just bring him on board as a junior engineer and see what he's like?" And towards the end, I was working on very high-profile projects, like the market data servers. It was like saturating gigabit lines of market data, and like we basically had to process them in very efficient manners and be able to allocate things correctly in memory and whatnot, so that the trading algorithms can access these, this data pretty efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, just towards the end, we were working on options market making, but I left before that. And then dark pool exchanges—that was really interesting to play with. I mean, some, some of these really interesting things that most people won't ever. Uh, encounter in their lives mm-hmm. uh, and the, the technology on Wall Street was so far ahead of Silicon Valley when I came here everybody was like very hyped up about the real time web mm-hmm. and it was like oh my god the real time web the real time web and that, that was you know when I left Wall Street and I was like I don't understand like I've been doing real time for the past four years. I'm so confused why this is such a brand new idea like mm-hmm. it's just they are so ahead of the curve um, in terms of uh, their own technology, the, the only the only downside is they don't give back to the community. There's no like open source in the finance world. Yeah. You just go to another bank and you build the exact same thing that you did 
at the at the previous bank, but with yeah. like some newer technology. Yeah. <laughs> But it was a, it was a definitely, I definitely had some good mentors, um, incredible engineers. They're all ex-Goldman Sachs. Um, so it was just really, really interesting to be under that kind of mentorship. Yeah, totally. And so after that, did you, was that when you went to eBay or Milo first, I guess? Yeah, Milo. So my co-founder, my current co-founder, Mateen, he reached out to me and I was going to accept a job offer at Citadel. Uh, Citadel Hedge Fund. So I was ready. I was ready to move on mm-hmm. in the finance world, and I had an offer from Citadel Hedge Fund. Um, and I was thinking, and he called me, and he was like, "Hey, man, uh, I have this. We are, I'm just joining a startup. I'm number two at the startup mm. called Milo.com. It's like a local search engine, and." I was wondering maybe if you were interested at all. And I, and I was like, oh, well, you know, I was like, oh, maybe. And he, he was like, I got to send you a challenge question. And I was like, okay, cool. And he was like, yeah, I need it done in like two days. And I was like, uh, <laughs> okay, sure. So I like took a weekend off and like kind of just like cranked this one out. And I got a solution to him on Sunday night. And part of the reason I wanted to join Milo actually was they were like a typical startup but the languages that they use, you know, in, in Wall Street, they use like C++ or Java, really boring languages that are not very exciting, but they're good. Don't get me wrong. Like going back now, I can see why they use them. But like, I was just I was like, man, I just don't want to like have to spend time compiling. I just want to write Python or, 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 you know, do whatever I want with some random databases. And that was very appealing. That was very, that was more appealing to me at the time. And I was like 24, 25 at the time. It was mm-hmm. more appealing to me at the time than staying on Wall Street and like continuing down this finance world. So yeah, I joined Milo. Yeah. So the big draw there was was the technology, the tech stack? Yeah, yeah. The thing, you know, it was small. I mean, I didn't know if Milo was going to be the next Google. I, statistically speaking, it's kind of like a fool's errand to think that you're going to be the next Google when you go join a startup. You're not joining a startup for the money, almost never joining a startup for the money. In fact, I definitely not joined a startup for the money. But the idea was just to be able to express yourself creatively yeah. with, using different kinds of technologies was very interesting to me. It's interesting what a huge deal that is to, to programmers, especially the passionate ones. It's like the language you're going to be using can make or break a job for sure. Yeah, it's kind of interesting really um, to think about that. I think mostly it's because you're in this phase, you know, even when you're 25, you're just starting your career. Mm-hmm. And like, there, you would always use C experts, and sure, like, that's a great thing, but like, it's so hard to prototype something in C. Um, and it requires an enormous amount of effort. And really, it's not very friendly to very quick and dirty. You're talking about dedicating tens of years to understanding how C++ really works, all the internals, yada, 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 all these linker, bizarre linker errors that you would get, dependency, hell, all these different things that come with the ecosystem that just require an enormous amount of experience in the language versus something like Python, which gives you like a stack trace and, you know, it's just like you can interactively debug it. And to me, I was like, I just want to learn more about, you know, distributed systems or I want to learn more about databases. I want to learn more about things that go alongside with how to build systems, not necessarily just programming. And something like Python was like a bridge to get there, right? It was like some, it was, or Ruby, it doesn't matter what it is, but just like I was like really interested in potentially becoming a better Python programmer, and that really, really changed the job for me. Yeah, totally. I'm just it's interesting to me because I'm assuming like this offer for Citadel salary wise blew away Milo's startup situation, of course, right? But mm-hmm. you're looking to grow, you're looking to learn, 
And it strikes me that, you know, if, especially if you're a little company, if you can make, you know, if you can be using interesting technologies, you can be attracting passionate people with stuff other than money. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we do this as balance, a balance right now. You know, I'll, I'll go and, you know, we just hired uh, Noah, who could have gotten any job he wanted, but he just wanted to build a vision. He wanted to, you know, he had a vision in his mind. And he was like, I want to build this idea of fix making. And he was like, I want to fix making. And he was an ops code engineer. You know, the, the, they make this product called Chef. It's kind of like a configuration management product, similar like Puppet or Ansible or Config Engine. And um, what the, what's really cool about it is he was like, I don't really like the way they're going and I think that this is hindering other people from building things and I want to fix that. And I was like, wow, every engineer that I know has this problem. Everybody's trying to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Every startup is trying to solve this problem internally and they accrue technical debt and so on and so forth. And you know, balanced open company approach, I was like, you can come build this here and you can just build that vision here because that is aligned with my vision. That is aligned with what I want balance to be. And you can achieve that goal through the medium of balance. And that is a very powerful recruiting tool. And it, obviously the culture of balance sets itself up like that where you can come and kind of just say, I have a vision and I want to execute on this vision. Mm -hmm. And balance is a place where there are resources for you to do that um, mm -hmm. and express yourself. And I, I think that's really important and, and that's why he chose us. He could have gone anywhere he wanted, but he chose us because he was like, I can execute on my vision at balance. And it's very important. It's very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've now come to modern day where you are CTO at Balance Payments. <laughs> just balanced, right? That's the just balanced. Yeah, balanced. Yeah, yeah. Um, we actually balance.com is an audio manufacturing. It's like an audio chipset manufacturing okay. company, and we're, we're in talks with them to acquire their domain name, but we'll see. Yeah, we at least initiated the talk. It kind of fell off, but um, balance payments. Yeah. Um, so the way balance started was Mateen left Milo before the acquisition. Post Milo, uh, after Milo was acquired by eBay. I left immediately. I just thought the opportunity cost of my age at the time did not. Well, if I wanted to work at a big company, why would I come to Silicon Valley? I didn't think that was very important. I just didn't. It just didn't make sense to me. Um, and then Mateen got into Y Combinator of the winner of 2011 batch, mm -hmm. and he was like, "Since you want to leave anyway, why don't you just become my co-founder and you could start Y Combinator with me?" Y Combinator hadn't started yet. Said Smile sold in December of 2010, and I was like, oh, "That's a really, that's a really good offer." And I, I simultaneously had like two, three offers on the table when I left Milo. But Mateen really was like, "You should just come and build what you want to build technically here." And I thought that was like a really again, he kind of just was like, "Here's this medium that you can build your vision technically and see how you can execute on that, and I will give you resources, and you will become a co-founder next to me." And I was like. That's really cool. And then I went to Y Combinator. I'm very grateful for you know going through Y Combinator, meeting Paul Graham, and so on and so forth. Um, it, it just motivated me even more to work even harder to execute on my vision to make it a reality. Mm. So the first couple of years of Balanced were kind of very difficult because we were still kind of figuring out banking relationships, and that is a regulatory hurdle on its own. I mean, we could have another call about that. But then, um, and then like just being very clever on how to stay alive. Uh, and then Mateen finalized the relationship with Chase Payment Tech. And we were like, okay, what do customers want? Like, how do we build a product that customers really want? And everybody was telling us, like, white label, like, we don't want your brand. The company was called PoundPay before, and PoundPay 
terrible name, by the way, um, was um, <laughs> actually one of our customers, Zarly, did a um, customer uh, interview. And they were like, Pound Pay sounds like a scam of PayPal. And, um, and I was like, oh, my God, it does. <laughs> I had no idea. And so we were like, we should change it. And Mateen came up with the name Balanced. And at first, I didn't, I didn't really like it. I was like, I'm not really sure how I like this name. Um, and I fought him pretty heavily on it. But then it started to dawn on me. You know, After several names, I was like, oh, Balanced, that's, that's not a bad name at all. It could be pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so, we, so you know, we nailed the banking relationship. We rebranded as Balanced. And, you know, we just took our feedback. The customers wanted, they were like, Pound Pay before was like an iframe. And like, we, we, like, you had to go to our dashboard that was branded by Pound Pay to like be able to, you know, pay yourself out. It was just like an awful experience for the consumer because if you're a marketplace or you're kind of any kind of merchant that uses us, you'd be like, why do I have to introduce this Pound Pay person to my customer? It seems so silly. And you know you're you're coming out of that PayPal mentality where mm-hmm. you know about PayPal, so that's why people will be like, "Yeah, I mean, let me send you off to PayPal because you." I assume you already know about PayPal, but if you don't know about PayPal, like if I come up to you and I'm like, "My name is Pound Pay," and you'd be like, "Who the hell is Pound Pay? I don't I don't know them. Like, why would I go to them? Give them the banking information? That's terrible." Yeah. And then on top of that, um, our customers were like, "We just need you to get out of our way." You know, we need you to get out of our way. We payments there. It's important, but we want you to get out of our way of building our product or how to design it. And it was a big deal. And so we just took their ideas to heart and rebranded and revamped the entire product. Mm-hmm. And Balance launched about three months after that. And we had our first. We had a customer like Fancy, one of our biggest customers, jumped on and integrated and went live right away. So that was like a very big milestone for us. This is very interesting, very, very interesting life cycle. Yeah. So what do you see your role as then as CTO? What is the vision you're building? That has changed a lot over the time. So, you know, it's actually very interesting that you asked that. You see a lot of talk and advice to CEOs, but you don't see a lot of individuals talk about what is the role of a CTO mm-hmm. and typically a CTO is like somebody who's like oh the first engineers are usually one of the CTOs or whatever and if you stop right there and what a CTO is then I don't think you're going to become a very good CTO um, I think in fact you're just going to be like a very good engineer but you don't you probably will not be a good CTO right. and there's several several startups suffer from this problem I think a CTO is someone that can take the requirements of the business and can materialize them and scale a team a lot quicker and in more efficient manner than without them themselves, right? So that, like they are the types of individuals that would be key technology stakeholders in the company that essentially say, hey, I can take your vision, you know, Mr. CEO or Mr. Product Person or whomever, and I will make use of resources very efficiently mm-hmm. and I will be able to execute on this vision very well. You know, basically, a CTO is almost like the executor, not the executive officer, mm-hmm. but they're they're the executor. They're the ones that are on the front lines. You know, as the team gets bigger, obviously they take more of a, an executive role, but they're typically the, a key person in at least in balance. I'm very much in charge of like what gets pushed out, what's not, what's being held up, what's blocked. How can we paralyze and pipeline certain features? How can everybody get the resources that they need to execute? on their visions and I cohesively sit there and I'm able to join most of these features and push them out to production pretty quickly. Secondly, you know, 
there's uh, there's the problem of like uptime and infrastructure. You know, as you scale and when you have a high value dollar amount associated per request, as we had even balanced, mm-hmm. uptime becomes extremely important. In fact, if we're down, you can actually measure. Most of our customers can measure how much money they're losing if we're down. Um, they can say, here are all the sales that haven't gone through, and here's our reputation. This is how much it actually costs us when you're down. Mm-hmm. So you have this like immense pressure yeah. to not go down, and you're a 24-7 company. So... It's like, you know, most people today will write some app and deploy it to Heroku and be like, here's my startup, right? But <laughs> it's not like that in, in Balance. Balance is actually very, very focused on PC, like we have to be PCI compliant, we're very security conscious. We go through a lot of security audits um, to make sure the data is safe. We constantly have to be very cognizant which traffic makes more sense to us. Like, do we prioritize production traffic over some other production traffic? And how do we roll out features so that they don't break customers? These are higher level things that a CTO has to instill in their engineers so that they can, you know, take that those principles and apply them to their day to day life. Because obviously, what's going to happen is if you just let them go wild and you just like sit down and code on your own, you're never, you're never going to have that cohesiveness of being able to execute on the company's vision and you will have downtime. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So to sum it up, to sum up this is like a ramble, I'm sorry about that, but to sum, to sum up, a CTO is a chief executor and they're the ones who essentially are in the trenches and they need to make the right technology decisions to make the business goals move a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. And that's a competitive advantage. Oh, sure. So what does the architecture look like? Uh, from the beginning, Balance is a purely service-oriented architecture. So when we first started, we built services. You know, the, there's the vault, which we call Knox. Knox is essentially a very secure PC within PCI scope vault. That is where we keep all the information encrypted and so on and so forth. And that's kind of like what get what gets audited and has a lot more security on it. And that service is the core of Balance. It's also the thing that makes the communication. It's also the service that talks to our processors and reconciles. What's that written in? Python. Okay. And then on top of that, there is this layer called precog. And precog essentially is our fraud layer. Mm-hmm. But it's also to us internally, precog resembles what an internal processor would be. So any service that uses precog doesn't know about precog's internals. It would think of it as integrating directly into a bank or integrating directly into PayPal or something like that. It basically acts like a third-party service. Hmm. And that allows you to put the context of a shared nothing mentality. Like I don't have to hard code anything in there. Like basically I don't need to know about the internals of precog if I'm using it and it acts like a different processor. A good reason why you would do that for example is Typically, we have to have multiple processors on the back end, right? Um, and you know, one would be one bank, another would be one bank, and whatever type of like instrument that we're trying to operate on, whether it's a bank account, whether it's a card, whether it's Bitcoin, or whatever it is that it is that, that we work on, ideally, the balanced API should not care what that is. It should just say, "Do what I mean when I tell you to do this," right? right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what Precog does. That's like its its essence, and then it also has a very, very sophisticated kind of like fraud system that listens on all, a lot of signals and it stops a lot of fraud. It's pretty awesome. Mm. I, I realize I've committed like interviewing 101 mistake, which is we, didn't, we haven't talked about exactly what balance does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I'll tell you what balance does. So, balance essentially it's a payments API uh, that allows you to charge a card, debit a bank account, 
or even allow your customers to pay with Bitcoin now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will hold the money in escrow until a service or good has been delivered or fulfilled. And it will allow you to control the payouts to your customers. So the way it works is think of uh, how eBay and uh, an Etsy work. If you've ever purchased on them, mm-hmm. you typically buy and then the money is kind of held. And then when the service or good has been delivered, you would send the money to the person who's fulfilling that order or performing that service. Mm-hmm. So, and then and balance is really unique concept here is it allows this like interruption of the flow. So PayPal, I'll send you money immediately. And if you don't get your service, you just file kind of like a chargeback with PayPal. Mm-hmm. You can kind of do a dispute. But balance is really cool because it will allow you to just like intermediate all the, pay- all the payments. You control as a marketplace in a very white labeled manner. You control what you take in and what you pay out. Mm-hmm. So... That will give you kind of flexibility to be able to say, I want to pay my merchants whenever whenever they're done or or I can batch them. And it also brings from like really unique use cases of commerce online. Like crowdfunding is really important. So crowdfunding is like a really big use case, right? Mm-hmm. People will kind of like tally up, tally up, tally up. And when they hit a certain goal, then they charge all the cards or they debit all the bank accounts. And then they pay the person who's designated to receive those funds. Right. And you guys power that. And we power that, yeah. Right. So we like other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So think of like, have you heard of Crowd Tilt? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we power Crowd Tilt. We power Fancy. We power Reddit Gifts. Have you heard of Reddit Gifts? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The Secret Santa. That's all. That's all power through balanced. Gotcha. Um, so yeah. So the way that works is basically credit card, hold money, pay out. And then the idea is like, let's substitute arbitrary funding instruments. So instead of credit cards, let's use bank accounts, right? Mm-hmm. Let's use bitcoins. That's the idea. Um, as long as the we basically just move USD, you know, dollar to dollar, you can use balanced. Cool. So you guys have an interesting fact about you, which is you are an open company and sort of sort of radically so. You have tons of open source, which is actually fairly standard, but you also do it seems like as much as possible in a public and open way. Like your support is a public IRC channel. I think you guys are pretty upfront about other business internals. Can you talk about that? Yes. So we're an open company. And what does that really mean? So really interestingly about Balanced, we were inspired by GitHub, um, which is kind of a marketplace that we also power that runs as an open company itself. Their whole thing's open and they take open to a real extreme where they do all interviews. Everything's like an open Google Hangout. They share all their finances publicly and it's just like a very, very radical transparency. They, I don't know if they've influenced or not influenced, but you know, Buffer is very open as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Watsy. Watsy is very open as well. Trovebox is very open as well. They, we actually had an open company kind of conference mm-hmm. um, where we invited Trovebox. Was it private? <laughs> Uh, no, it was open and okay. you could have just come. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, no, but, um, but yeah, it was really interesting. And the idea is even modern payment companies are not transparent. They're not transparent in the way that they tell you like, kind of like the roadmaps. They're not transparent in the way that they tell you kind of their internals. And they could tell you that, oh, it's a product abstraction or it's an implementation detail. But in reality, these things matter. They matter to our customers because they're ultimately we're building companies and our primary audience is not just our 
end consumers. They are also developers, right? Particularly as mostly we build open companies. Really open companies matter at this point to developers. Developers really care very much or people who are involved in information technology. They're just very, very, very interested in open companies and particularly open source culture and something like Red Hat is a beacon of light, you know, where they've actually made a billion, their billion dollar company valuation as an open source company, right? You know, and they, you know, it's very, very interesting. But ultimately, as developers, we're really interested in the, in the kind of like nooks and crannies of how things work. We're really interested in kind of the nuts and bolts. We're like, how does this work? Like, is this the most efficient use? Can we change this? Can we change that? And one, one thing we've noticed is what people would be like, man, PayPal would be really awesome if their dashboard was like up to date. Or like, wow, like PayPal would be really cool. Oh, like, how hard would it be to add said feature? Like, I could just do that myself. Or how hard would it be to add this, this, and this, I could do this myself. And so we were like, okay, let's call your bluff. Let's do it. We're going to be an open company. And so the idea is like, we're going to be an open company and we're just going to build tons of products in the open and we're going to support them and people can come on board and kind of change them. And the response has been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. People will, you know, we have customers who will go to the dashboard, fork the dashboard, fix a bug in the dashboard and send the pull request to us. And or like add a feature or do something to it, and it will go live, and it'll be live within fifteen twenty minutes on hmm. the dashboard. And so I think that is an incredibly powerful movement here because you've essentially you've essentially said, listen, if you want the software, you may have it, and you can control it. You can do whatever you want with it. Mm-hmm. We'll maintain it for you, and we'll host it. And you can use our hosted version. You can just embed it into your application. There's no reason for us not to do that. And that is super super powerful in terms of several things. One. It establishes kind of like credibility with our customers. And two, it is a great recruiting medium, right? It's a recruiting medium because you'll get really, really passionate individuals who want to like contribute and they will do so. And they'll say, hey, you know what would be cool? If I came and, you know, ran my vision on your platform. We just hired an engineer named Carlos who came on board and he was like, I have a vision of how I want to structure JavaScript applications and how I want to run a dashboard. And I really, really want to be able to do that. And we were like, wow, that's awesome. Go right ahead, right? Like, that's so cool. And he came and he built this feature that's going to be announced in two weeks or so. But um, it's actually like incredibly, incredibly powerful to see how people can come in and kind of just get up to speed very quickly and contribute. And then also think about contractors. Contractors can come in and we can ask them to build certain features on balance. Mm-hmm. And it's just like they're contributing to an open source project. They can just they can say, here's my work, and they can point to it right there and the commits and they can show people the work that they've done. Mm-hmm. And they can use that to kickstart their careers or kickstart their clients and so on and so forth. Yeah. We just think overall it's a big win for the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my questions for you was how do you uh, hire good people? It sounds like that's <laughs> So that, so that's basically it, right? Um, yeah, being open is an incredible recruiting medium. It's probably the most effective recruiting medium there is. People can see you can see you can go to GitHub.com/slash/balanced right now, and you can view our code. You can view our source code. You can see us pushing things live. And some of the cool things that we're doing is not only in software. We're also building infrastructure. Um, and the idea is we use AWS on the back end. So everything on balance runs on uh, AWS. And um, what's really, really cool about that is AWS has this really awesome thing called cloud formation, which essentially allows you to describe kind of like your entire cloud in this data-driven JSON format. And there's like Python libraries around it that can uh, make it easier for you to kind of programmatically declare and generate these JSON templates. 
So what we've done is we've built a wrapper around these Python libraries, and we've essentially built a DSL for infrastructure. And the idea is you can just say, here's my infrastructure, here's what I want. I want a couple of NATs, some VPC, some databases, an API server, go. And it will spin it all up for you. And we use Chef very, very heavily in the company. You know, everything's open. If you go to github.com slash balance dash cookbooks, you'll see all of our cookbooks there. You can basically replicate balance yourself. And that is really, really cool because if companies want to use our architecture and infrastructure to build their own high availability products and build their own systems, they can just take our code and just use that. We have no problems giving it to them. That's kind of like the purpose of us existing. And we think it's really, really cool. Mm -hmm. They can just build on top of us. It's nice that you know you guys get the benefit of you know people are willing to contribute to your stuff because they know it'll be publicly visible and will reflect well on them. But also, you know, you get the the warm fuzzies of giving all that stuff back to the world and sort of the opposite of the build the same system at that other bank yeah. thing going on. Yeah, stop building the system again. <laughs> you nailed it. You, you absolutely nailed it. It's just like. Can we please move on? Can we focus on building better products and not having to reinvent the wheel every single time we go somewhere? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, really important for future companies to come. And we think the more transparent and open balanced is, the more powerful it is. Because we think that at some point we can be kind of like extensions to how proper APIs are designed. We can be influencers on how proper architecture is designed because we have contributed real production working architecture to individuals and the community. And I think that's very, very important because typically when you see an open source project, the first thing you'd ask yourself is, cool, but who's using it? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Who's using this in production? Right. And if I, come to, if I come to you and I'm like, I've just opened my entire architecture to you and I'm a high availability, real-time payments company, I mean, you can't get any more battle tested than that, right? It's right. very, it's very, very awesome, and you you can stick and do it in your own thing, and it's that's super cool for me. That's mm-hmm. very like uh, that's why I get up in the morning. <laughs> that's cool. So we're we're getting a little long here, so I want to wrap up, uh, but sure. I want to ask you one more sort of um, very open ended question, and it's gonna be up to you to sort of interpret what this means. Where is your happy place? Oh, that's a that's an interesting thing. I my happy place is knowing that I can leave an impact on someone, on, on, on the world, right? I, I typically ask myself this question. It's like, if you actually estimate the amount of years we have left, you know, given the average lifespan of a, a U.S. citizen, like a, an average male might live to like 77 years, 80 years, mm-hmm. which if you boil down the amount of time, you actually have like 25 to 28,000 days. And when you start thinking about days in terms of during the tens of thousands, not the hundreds of thousands, you start realizing that life's a little short. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it doesn't really hit you until you start thinking about things like that. And then you realize that what you want to do is you want to try to leave a legacy. What you want to do is you want to try to leave a mark on the world. And that makes me happy. That makes me happy. Recognizing that every day that I get up in the world and I, and I go to this job and I kind of like sit down with these incredible engineers and I'm building something that potentially gets set to be a framework for somebody going forward or building new companies on top of that. You know, even if balance is not successful, I feel like that is something that would still be there, right? Like it would set a ca- it's a catalyst for a movement that potentially could change the world going forward. I don't mm. know if it will, but it's enough to know that I tried, right? And most people can go through their entire lives and recognize that they say they haven't tried doing that, but 
I want to say that I've tried doing that. And if I failed, I failed. But if I don't fail, then I've left an awesome impact on the world. And I think that's really interesting for me. That's probably what keeps me going. It's part of this immigrant hustle that I have. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, so it's really interesting. All right, cool. Well, let's leave it right there. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. For oh, yeah. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Thanks thank for, your, for coming by. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 89. We'll link to your Twitter and balance and all that in there and some of the stuff we talked about. Thanks very much for listening.